Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Genocide Studies with the New Books Network. My name is Christopher P. Davey, and I am the Charles E. Scheidt Visiting Assistant Professor of Genocide Studies and Prevention at the Strasser Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Clark University. And I'm very excited to have with me here today uh, Nerina Weiss and Arella Graziani, who are the authors of a newly published book, Entanglements of Ethnographic Fieldwork in a Violent World. This was published uh, just this year by Rowledge in their series on fieldwork and ethnographic research. Hello, welcome to both of you. Hi. Hi, thank you. Uh, So I'm just going to introduce both of you briefly. So uh, Narina is a senior researcher at the Fafo Institute for Labour and Social Research in Oslo, Norway, and is part of the Global Studies Group. And she has been a um, Marie Curie uh, IE Fellow at the Danish Research Institute, Danish Dignity Institute Against Torture. And uh, Rella Graciani is an associate professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Amsterdam, the Netherlands. Uh, She studies Israeli security industry and its effects on human rights worldwide. She also works on nationalist militias and social movements in Israel. And she studies the politics of trees in her project on arboreal nationalism. And a third author uh, for this book is unable to join us today is Linda Green, who is a professor of anthropology at the University of Arizona. Her research traces the historical shifts in vulnerability, particularly among peoples across the Americas whose primary identity is indigenous. Her field research sites include rural Guatemala, the US-Mexico border, and rural Alaska. So, uh, Nerina and Rella, welcome again. Uh, it's great to have you here. So, uh, before we get started into you know, talking about the, the many uh, dynamics and aspects of this really exciting book, I wonder if you could tell uh, our listeners a little bit about yourselves, just about uh, your career path and the kind of fieldwork that you engage in. Okay. Nerina, you want to start? Yeah, I can start. So... I'm a social anthropologist, uh, originally from uh, Austria, and did my PhD at the University of Oslo in Norway. And uh, very early on, I was became interested in conflict, um, border societies. So I did my master's on border issues in Cyprus, and then proceeded to do my PhD on the consequences of violence and conflict um, between uh, the Kurdish nationalist movement and the Turkish state in did fieldwork in eastern Turkey. Um, and it's interesting in how uh, people talk about the violent experiences. Then uh, I took this a bit further by doing a postdoc on torture survivors and how they express their violent experiences in both within the nationalist context in Turkey, and but also in therapy and the therapeutical context in Denmark. And um, later on, I uh, studied, so I've, I've always followed Kurdish activists in one way or other. Um, lately, I've, I've done research on the mobilization to the wars in Syria, Iraq, and Turkey, especially during, during IS and how foreign fighters join the Kurds to fight um, Daesh. And parallel to this, I also do applied research in Norway, mainly on asylum and migration politics. Yeah. Um, 
Yes, so I, um, I'm, uh, I'm also an anthropologist, uh, social anthropologist. Uh, I did my uh, PhD research in, uh, at uh, VU University in Amsterdam. Um, I'm both Dutch and Israeli. I was born in Israel. Uh, so, the, yeah, the area of my research was, um, yeah, was quickly found. Uh, and when I did my master research still, um, or was still studying, I basically, when being more in Israel, um, I realized how militarized the society was and the effects of, of, of the military, military on the on my friends who were then uh, all in the military. Uh, and that's how I started to think about uh, these issues of what does militarization do to a society? Um, how does like the violent reality of being an occupation, um, an occupying uh, entity actually uh, come into being? And what does it do with, with the occupying society? So very quickly in my career, very early, I started thinking about perpetrators of, of violence um, and the, the more powerful, if you, if we look at the conflict or, or a context of, of uh, violence. Uh, and so my first um, larger research, uh, my PhD research was on the moralities of Israeli soldiers who served uh, conscription soldiers in occupied territories in Palestine. Um, and um, then um, I started doing a quite large project on the private uh, security industry in, in Israel, which is basically kind of a follow-up because these are often the same people. So every time I still think, look at how the military is still involved in all of these uh, issues. Um, I look at militias, also uh, militias, so state and non-state actors uh, who are who are violence or who have a potentiality to use violence. And now my current uh, research, which I'm actually uh, undertaking now, I'm, I'm on field work uh, in Israel as we speak, is uh, on arboreal nationalism. And I really look at kind of the same issues of nationalism, of, uh, of occupation. And now I look at how trees are being instrumentalized by different actors um, in, into this, uh, this violent reality. Thank you both. That was really interesting. And I'm hopefully we get to return to some of your work as we go throughout the conversation. I wanted to move us into thinking about the book itself. And one thing that really struck me was in the title that we're sort of demarcating a violent world. And as I mentioned earlier, we're sort of hosting this conversation through the um, Genocide Studies channel on the New Books Network. And oftentimes we you know, tend to see violence everywhere and that often then needs to fall into different categories. But I've really liked how, for the framing of the book, this was sort of cast quite broadly and, and widely. So I wondered if given that, and just generally, you might be able to tell us a bit about what the book is about and its purpose. Yeah, I can I can start at least. So both Adela and I, and, and, and especially also Linda, we all have worked on violence and conflict for a very long time. And we've seen, especially within the, anthro- within the anthropological literature, that um, a lot, that the last 20 years, a lot has happened when it comes to focus on violence and conflict. Um, and we are, the last 10 years has also been an increase of literature on methodology, um, how to stay safe, um, but what is still missing, or what we saw was still missing, was this profound discussion about how we as researchers can get better prepared and can prepare our students to do research in violent settings. 
And we also felt that there was a need of an open discussion um, about what violence does to people, and here not only to the people we study with, but also what it does to us uh, and what effects this has, not only on our health, but also on the way we, we can deal with the data we collect. So we wanted them to bring together uh, researchers who have experience with research in violence settings, and violence settings is pretty broad. So we, we wanted um, chapters that focused on, on mass violence, but we also wanted those papers where violence maybe was not the center uh, on the focus of the research. Um, but extreme poverty, extreme pollution, um, um, extreme inequality, and how those different forms of violence um, still had an effect um, on the research. If you go and work with torture victims, you know what to expect. But if you go and work on um, extractivism, you not necessarily expect to meet these different forms of violence and how then can people get prepared so we didn't want to have a handbook that you do a b c and then you're covered but we'd rather wanted to challenge the authors to actually tell their raw stories not hiding behind um, theory not hiding behind these polished papers but actually what happened? How did they deal with it? What did they feel? What were the dilemmas? And the book is not, um, rather than telling people how to proceed, we hope that the book is more a way of pushing people to reflect, reflect on the, on the chapters, but on reflect on their own experiences. Yeah, thanks very much. So I, maybe that just moves me into the next question I had. Um, it's why should scholars think reflexively about their fieldwork, field particularly in you know, working in a violent world? And what are some of the barriers to scholars being able to think reflexively about their fieldwork? We know that being exposed to violence and social suffering and conflict has negative effect on people. We know that. Um, we know this from reasons from psychology that violence affects people, um, both personally and but also in the way um, they are able to analyze and reflect on the material, as I said previously. And other fields, like for example um, psychology, but also different in, within the NGO world, there is. Um, an acknowledgement that people who are exposed to violence, they need supervision and spaces of reflection. Um, but this has not reached academia in very limited ways. Um, so we feel in order to be good researchers and in order to being able to continue that research over time, we need to reflect on what it does uh, with us. And of course, the barriers are many. Uh, one of these is that, especially within anthropology, fieldwork is still considered a rite de passage, that either you make it or you break it. Um, and if you break, then you're not a good anthropologist and you have nothing to do within anthropology. Um, and of course, this I think we are way beyond the time where this Tarzan syndrome, that it was hard, but I survived, is 
the only truth. Um, and research, but also the analysis will become far better uh, when we dare to open up, dare to talk, dare to talk about those experiences that often don't find a way into academic writing. And another barrier I would say is that especially when one works on violence and social suffering, um, that often we are confronted with so much violence and suffering and we feel so privileged in comparison to the people we work with that it is difficult to acknowledge that that violence also has something, also affects ourselves because we can leave, many of us can leave at least. So we are privileged. We we can we can choose when to stay and when to leave that violence, whereas the people we work with they can't. So then, to talk about one's own um, experiences with that violence is often linked to shame, um, which makes it difficult to acknowledge. Yes, I know that people suffer, but I do suffer as well, in a different way. But I do suffer. Yeah, and I think to add to this, one more kind of barrier that we have is, as I think, also the pressure to be uh, in academia to be uh, productive, right? So there is a really emphasis on results, and uh, you, you you go on fieldwork, and what did you find out? What are your results, and when are you going to publish? I mean, I felt that going now in field into into my fieldwork before I was here already. People were asking me, okay, when are you going to publish something? You know, when can we expect something? So there's also really little time to reflect because if you really want to reflect and understand where you have been, what you have experienced, I mean, this takes time. It's not like, okay, I'm going to sit one evening and I'm going to write some scribbles, some th- uh, some things down for myself and then understand this very deeply. Um, but with the, with this need to, to be productive, to publish, uh, you know, the, the whole publish or perish um, syndrome that we still, that's, it's still true in, in, in most of academia. It's still uh, uh, very, uh, yeah, it's very alive. Uh, so I think this is also one of the, the barriers that there are for us to, to take reflexivity really serious. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, those are, <laughs> barriers are also ever present. Uh, so what really drew me into the book in the beginning were the series of, well, there were several questions sort of dotted throughout, particularly in the introduction chapter, but there are a series of three questions um, in this introduction chapter, which I thought were really good for kind of focusing the reader and thinking about, you know, the subsequent content and, you know, the reflections that then the authors engage in. And these questions revolve around, you know, data and what good data means and also dealing with the, a little bit of this rite of passage and the romantics of of field work that, um, that was mentioned a moment ago. And then thirdly, the question about, you know, what it means to actually engage engage with the field work after the fact, right? What do we write? How do we write? And so on. And so I was interested to know a bit more about how these questions came about, um, the process that the US editors sort of undertook, uh, and the, some of the kind of intellectual um, and sort of conversational background to the book itself. Well, that's actually a difficult question because we've been talking about this book for 10 years. Um, you know, started with a conference in in Denmark, a workshop uh, where we try to um, kind of approach the topic of self care. Um, 
And it quite early on became those three questions, actually. So what is good data? We all experience that when we talk about the, the spectacular, the, the violent stuff, people get eager, people get engaged. Wow, fantastic data. Um, and, and kind of questioning, what does this mean? What does this mean that that the spectacular, the particularly violent, um, the particularly horrendous, difficult, why is that considered good data. Um, at the same time, also from from um, deeply um, personal experience that this idea that in order to be a good ethnographer, you have to immerse, you have to stay for a long time, have this intense intersubjective engagement, which you also find if you, if you open this classical um, kind of handbooks on ethnography like James Clifford and uh, he defines ethnography as the means for producing knowledge from intense intersubjective engagement and um, that this intensity and intersubjectivity should kind of be be fostered through long-term involvement intimate participation so this this kind of this idea of immersion is quite quite in the core of, of how especially anthropologists, have looked at at ethnography. Um, and, of course, this intense engagement, this immersion, um, is quite contrary to self-care. So how do we think about immersion and, and long-term engagement in violent settings? What does this mean? And can we also think about fieldwork in a different way? Um and there is also now this this um, move against the thick description towards maybe thin descriptions also do have their um, their worth. Um, and as many of us have experienced that after this type of fieldwork, that writing happens really difficult. Um, so what do we do? So actually, at least from from my perspective, all those three questions were um, quite came from personal experiences. These were the topics I, I struggled with and I wanted to discuss with Erella and with Linda and with kind of um, a core of, of engaged researchers. Yeah, and I think just to say a bit more about like the process when you come together and when you kind of realized, you realize together that, you know, you go through the same things. And I remember very well that, you know, that, that conference 10 years ago when we started talking about this you know, you just mentioned Tarzan or like this cowboy anthropology um, that were not only, but, but often men, you know, coming back from the field and, you know, only have these heroic stories and also expecting from others these heroic stories or at least telling us, you know, wow, that's great. That's great data, uh, even though it might have been really traumatic. Um, yeah, once we started talking about it, it was really, that's also something that's I think really important first of all that we started talking about it for for ourselves um but this is how these kind of questions grew and we realized okay there is this gap that, that we need to we, we need to kind of generate a, a, more about this so we can share this with others as well thank you and that I, that distinction around the you know this again, the, the rite of passage kind of intense engagement, right, versus then 
what that means for self-care, I think is a really crucial point. And so on that note, you've both said a little bit about how you came to do field work on various occasions and how your career path sort of took you through those experiences and where you are now. I'm wondering um, for each of you, what reflexive thinking meant for you when you started your field work and was this part of a graduate training or some other training that you had or is it something you kind of picked up along the way as you started thinking about it Lella do you want to start um yes I will um yeah so no there's, there was no training at all kind of when I began my PhD I, there was some training some training um on field on, on field work on methods uh, and usually this reflexive reflexivity goes into this field work and I remember it very very well that one of the lessons I had there was that once you you know you would go and do research in a village for example it was very good to sit with the women on the ground and have close contact and eye contact with them when you interview them and then I really I realized preparing myself to do research with Israeli soldiers in occupied territories that that was not the preparation I needed, method-wise, uh, of course, but 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 also indeed preparing me for a violent setting where I, you know, I would not sit um, on the floor and chat with people the whole day. So um, that was still kind of the the idea of what it was um, doing doing anthropological uh, field work, and I only I think I really started thinking about. Um, what had happened and the need for is um, when I also start, you know, when I came back from field work and started talking about it and sharing. Um, and, uh, and and also it, 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 it's a process that took many, many years. I mean, I still, I'm still learning about, you know, about, uh, about this, uh, this reflex, reflexivity and how, how important it is for us. But there was no mentioning, there was no training for that at all. Yeah, in in uh, in my training, there was no no talk about these topics either. And for me, it started actually during my masters on on working with biocommunal groups, also the Turkish Cypriots and the Greek Cypriots, um, across across the the border within Cyprus, and um, there was a lot of paranoia, a lot of suspicion, and at some point this paranoia and suspicion just I uh, incorporated it quite physically I, I got stomach ache um, uh, throughout my my master's uh, field work so, um, and when I went on for my PhD I knew that I didn't want to have stomach ache for a year um, and in the meantime I had done a peace and conflict as a course in peace and conflict studies organized by the Norwegian Peace and Peace Research Institute of Oslo was an international course where people from all over the world joined from most of these people had experience in working in conflict areas as uh, UN uh, employees or as, as employees of different NGOs and researchers. So before I went on fieldwork, I actually wrote the entire a group and asking them for tips what to do, how to not getting stomach ache during fieldwork. And their tips, so maybe this was actually the, the first, um, the, the beginning of, of thinking about self-care because they were quite clear that self-care is important. 
And it was quite practical tips. Drink a lot of water, go for a walk, have somebody to talk to. Um, leave. Especially those working with the UN uh, were quite clear that they left the field quite regularly um, and it was systematically. And so you were not allowed to stay in the field above a certain uh, amount of time. So they just, if, if it's too much, leave, go to go to Istanbul, have a nice weekend and come back again. Um, and also then during my PhD working um, at the Danish Institute uh, against torture, where people were engaging on an everyday basis with torture and mass violence, and where this idea of, um, as this also was a, a space where torture survivors were rehabilitated, there was quite an, a progressive, I would say, thinking about uh, what does the violence do to us um, researchers and therapists. So that there I was also quite uh, well taken care of um, how, how to deal with acknowledging that this is important work we do, but also acknowledging that this is difficult. Mm, thank you. Uh, earlier, um, we mentioned, or you mentioned, the this sort of emerging back and forth, or return to this kind of back and forth between, you know, what's better for data? Is it thick versus thin descriptions? And um, you, there was an element in the introduction that ties back to this. Uh, it's mentioned the uh, Hurley uh, Dupre's uh, perspective on. Um, non-events, right? What's an event versus a non-event and what's important you know, in terms of hearing people's experience and thinking about violence and, and categories. I wonder if you might be able to explain a little bit more about what this concept of non-event is and why that's important for the book going forward and how some of the chapters you know, sort of dig into this idea of non-events. Yeah. So uh, Molly uses non-events and f- she defines this, among other things, as um, the fear and anticipation of violence, as events that haven't happened yet, but which may potentially happen. Um, I've earlier worked with a kind of related notion as quasi-events, um, which are more understood as the consequences of neoliberal economy, pollution, long-term consequences of colonialism. So this, um, and in the context of migration, for instance, I've I've worked with those non-events, quasi-events, as ex- I've explored waiting, as a, the waiting of refugees, the waiting of asylum seekers, and, and what this does to people. So it's a non-event because nothing happens. Um, it's the lack of action. And Provinelli has theorized about this as kind of the violence of innovation. So those types of, of there's nothing spectacular in it. There is nothing, um, it's not an incident that happens, a crisis, but it's, it's something that that is there, uh, difficult to grasp, difficult to see, difficult to understand, but which still breaks people down slowly. Um um, it's, it's, it's Provinelli it calls it kind of this weakening of the will rather than the killing of life and that how hope and despair are conjured through the endurance of of the exhaustion of numerous small quasi-events so this, this 
continuous waiting, not knowing when, or this continuous pollution that kind of destroys hopes, destroys futures, um, and which then also be, find expression in, different, in other forms of violence, domestic violence, in, 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 in increased numbers of suicides, and that type. So it's it's so what we wanted to show is that the violence doesn't need to be spectacular and very visible in order to have a detrimental effect on the people we work with, but also on ourselves. Yeah, and I think to add to that, uh, I think what what's also very close to this concept is uh, the idea of structural violence and also uh, how it is developed in uh, in the idea of the continuum of violence, kind of getting theoretical here, uh, by uh, Schiffer Youth and uh, Philippe Bourgois. But I think it's important to mention because what they also say, except for from talking about these about these larger contexts and issues that indeed are not spectacular violence but do have very very severe consequences, um, these these situations also are really closely connected with direct forms of violence, right? So it's not, uh, you know, living in, in, in great poverty or under oppression, in occupation, you know, uh, from both sides. I see this in Israel-Palestine um, often leads to other kinds of, of, um, um, of violences. Um, and I think this is also, yeah, this is part of kind of understanding these uh, and these connections also, those, this, this continuum that is, uh, that is there. And then, of course, in our work, we bring in also um, the, the researcher herself uh, into this uh, equation. Thank you, Rella. Uh, in one of the chapters, it's speaking about these sort of structural issues, uh, one of the chapters and specifically mentions these in Carrie Tusing's chapter, um, there's discussion there about issues of power, privilege and intersectional identity. Uh, and these are then sort of threads that go throughout many of the other chapters as the writers or the authors reflect on their engagement in the field and their relations with participants in the field. Um, I wonder if you could both speak a little bit to how sort of you know, actors are related and sort of situated in this kind of more reflexive perspective, right? And so how are the, the dynamics, how are these dynamics of, of power and privilege and intersectional identity discussed in the book um, between both, you know, the researchers and then the people they're interacting with, those that they're interviewing, as well as interlocutors and gatekeepers and so on? I wonder if you might be able to pull out a few examples for us or just maybe talk about how, again, right, these issues of power, privilege and intersectionality are, are dealt with. Um, well, I, yeah, so I can start uh, by saying, I think um, I think that one of the things that we learn, of course, within anthropology very early on is to think about power relations, right? I mean, power relations is something that we study that we have to be aware of. Um, um, but I think that um, we don't talk enough about uh, about our about position, positionality and 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 yeah and these different different notions uh, and and power relations between between us especially and 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 the people that we do research with especially when it comes to uh, like in my work uh, the work with uh, perpetrators of violence with people that are more powerful so I think that. Um, anthropology is still, even though you know times are changing, um, still deals a lot 
um, with with studying and working with people who are less privileged, who are you know living in the in more in the periphery of of society, which is which is not a problem at all. But that is kind of the default uh, within our discipline. Um, so I think it's also important to kind of focus on research and what's happening when we do research with people that are powerful and maybe more powerful than than, than we are. Um, and for me. What was important is that um, I also like I realized what was happening much more also when I came out of the field and after people kind of um, you know started reacting on my work, for example, working with soldiers, uh, then it became very clear that my position was questioned uh, as an anthropologist. Um, how um, how can you um, because assuming I was leftist, liberal, etc. How can you, you know, tell us something about uh, about uh, about soldiers? That was one type of reaction, you know, because you're critical and, and then how is your research, quote unquote, um, objective? But also from within anthropology, I got a lot of reactions. Uh, actually, I remember very well a, a, a panel that that um, that Marina organized many many years ago, uh, where I was attacked for being, you know, for for for, for even. You know, doing this research on soldiers because you know soldiers are bad and they're violent, and we should only talk about uh, victims. So that is one kind of um, part of this story, I think. And then that that actually gave me like the incentive and motivation to really start digging into this and to to reflecting reflecting about my my, my status, like okay, how my position, how who who am I, who was I in the field. Um, and to start writing about this um, this uh, more as well. So for me, that is kind of a um, one facet that is this is important to uh, to mention here when we talk about you know power relations um, and also positionality um, of the researcher vis-a-vis uh, -vis, also in a political context uh, in the field. Hmm. If if I may add, I think in in the book we have several chapters, but particularly two chapters that take up um, kind of also the, the backside of, of intersectional identity and power relations. And that's two things. Uh, and um, just Carr's paper, um, because what both take up is those, those or, or situations where they actually feel disempowered. Um, Choosing feeling that as a woman she lacked access to certain um, interlocutors and certain uh, contexts, and Carl being seen as the enemy or, or identified as the enemy and thus rejected. And what they both very nicely show is that those negative, so we all know that positionality is important and we all write about positionality in, in our academic work, but what they show is that those, when it seems that it doesn't work out, um, kind of those negative aspects, that these are still quite seldom discussed and that, and, and again, it's linked to this idea of the, the uh, omnipotent um, research and what does it then mean um, to have restricted access? Does this mean of being a bad researcher? And what does it mean to being rejected by one's interlocutors? Does this mean 
that one has failed. And I think both show that, of course not, that this is yet another layer of super interesting, super important data that shows, that tells us something about um that tells us something about power relation and how social interactions work in a certain context. So on the topic of power relations, something that I've thought about and then was also raised by the chapter by Andreas Hackel about um, scholar activism. I wondered uh, what sort of you learned about this topic and perhaps your own reflections are on this on this theme. Um, and again, what's raised in the book uh, and why should scholars think about this or you know, those who are doing ethnographic fieldwork think about scholar activism before they engage in fieldwork? Yeah, so yes, I've been thinking about this a lot as an activist and a scholar. Um, and again, like I just said before, um, only, you know, after the, my field, my, my large field work, I started thinking about this and, and started realizing that people would have questions about this. Because for me, it was very kind of natural that I did, you know, both I was an activist and I was a scholar. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's very important to, to think about this. And I think it's, especially important to talk to our students about it. And most of our students are very enthusiastic. Um, they want to, you know, make the world a better place, which is wonderful. Um, but I think it's, and, and, and they often want to go into the field to, to make a difference, you know, to do something. Um, and I really, I think that's, again, I think that's great and that's important, you know, this incentive, this, this motivation they have. Um, but I think it's really important to take them aside for a moment and think about it, what they want to do. Uh, I think if students that are still learning. So what I usually tell my students is that's great, but first you're going to do research. You'll come back. You'll actually need to understand the context that you're going to, that, you know, you're doing fieldwork in to be able to make that difference. You know, you can't only start with the assumption that this is the reality and this is what I'm going to do to help these people. You know, so we have to really kind of, um, um, yeah, have them stand for a moment and realize that they don't know exactly what is happening. And that's why they need to do this research. So I think it's also for others, of course, um, important to deeply be knowledgeable about what we are and where we are going and where we are, what we are studying, who we are studying and we are participating with before we can talk about, uh, you know, being a scholar activist. And again, I'm not, not against this idea at all, but I think sometimes we, and also especially young, younger scholars, we jump into this activism too fast without uh, understanding fully what uh, what it is that we are doing. And with that, we can also, of course, um, do a lot of harm. And I think it's also important to realize that even though we are, uh, I mean, Shepard Hughes had, 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 you know, wrote about this um, um, idea of, um, um, of, you know, hardcore, you know, activist research, um, that every, every research by anthropology, every ethnographic research should be, um, should be activists and uh, I'm not necessarily of that same uh, same opinion um, but I do think that through our research 
um, we can improve things, even though it's really small. And I think there are just, I think there, there, there are a lot of different ways. And again, that's why it's important, I think, also to think about it upfront. What can you do? I don't think necessarily you have to, you know, be out in the streets and, you know, protest um all the time which is also a possibility but i think that's through the way that we're asking questions and the way that we're writing our ethnography or our ethno anthropological work in general um this can also be in a way um, um activist uh, being being an activist so these are there i think there are different different forms for this um and again really important to talk to our students about this before they they go uh, in the field because they can hurt others and themselves as well on the way. If, if I could add to this, I also think that um, activism can have so many different forms. So for, for my own experience, I would not say that I'm a scholar activist. At the same time, I do a lot of critical engagement. Um, I work with I work with activists. That's uh, most of my my anthropological work has been in some way engaging with Kurdish activists, and and my my role has often been then to be the critical mind, to be critical also to their activism, but to also contribute to dissemination, to talking. Um, on, on national national TV and and radio and and just providing the context information that many people don't have, but which you get as an anthropologist who has engaged for a long time. And for this question, I really would have liked to have Linda Green uh, here because Linda has of course engaged uh, with the with migration, but also with the Guatemalan uh, society for many 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 years. And in her chapter in this book, she actually reflects about this giving back and how how can you um, how can you use that profound knowledge that you gain by doing ethnographic fieldwork? Um, how can this knowledge benefit the people you've been working with? And what Linda is doing is that she's actually now engaging with the grandchildren of those women she did her PhD with. And those grandchildren are now migrants coming to the US. And so Linda is an expert witness for, I don't know how many asylum court cases a year where she witnesses and gives this ethnographic context in order to help those women getting asylum in the US. So I think also this this reflecting about what kind of activism do I have to just go on demonstrations or can I can I change the world to a better place, as Arela said, in another way, in different ways? What what are the means I have? And how do those means change the more knowledge I get um, about that field I'm working with? Thank you. Yeah, and this is a really, it is a really crucial question. I think that so, so many of us are, are ill prepared for it when we go out in the field and often, uh, in, in my experience, I didn't want to insert too much of, of myself into the conversation here, but in my experience is often then also an expectation for scholar activism from the, the people we, we speak with, 
um, and who are wanting stories to be told on their behalf. And so there's this sort of you know, multi-directional power dynamics of, of what's assumed about power and then, you know, the power then of someone asking their story to be told as well. So, yeah. Yeah. So the, so the, the other question I, I wanted to, to sort of, or set of questions I wanted to, to move us towards is thinking about some of the practices that are highlighted in the book. And this, for me, was one of the really big um, takeaways that I had from the text was you know, what, how do other people do this, right? And how do they do this reflexivity? Uh, I really liked uh, Ivana Macek's um, description of painting as writing. Uh, for me as a visual person, this was just beautiful, right? the way this was described. And then uh, Omar Ajazi as well, also talking about writing oneself. Uh, I wonder if each of you might be able to speak a little bit more about this sort of content in the book and maybe some of your own thoughts and, and feelings about you know, the relationship to our writing and how this might connect to self-care. Erella, you want to start? Um, yeah, I think for, yeah, I, I can <laughs> give my, easier to talk from, from my, myself. I think for me, um, what was important, and also this is what I wrote for this, for, for this book, um, was admitting to myself that, um, that I did not always enjoy field work, that I often, um, yeah, that found it very difficult and didn't want, and, and felt really bad and would go, you know, would, would leave, uh, um, leave interviews with a bad feeling and, um, did not want to look at, at, at my at my material afterwards, uh, not because, as as is much more the case for, for Nadina, because you know the, the suffering of, of the people I, I talked to was too big, you know, um, but because the people I worked with are just you know they're very they're 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 violent people, they're they're powerful people, um, and the fact giving you know um, admitting to myself that it's okay not to like field work. And not to not to enjoy field work, I think it was that was was also a, a form of self care because I felt um, for a long time I felt um, yeah really like a bad researcher uh, because I did not enjoy my field work and I did not necessarily like going on field work and it was such a struggle um, and I didn't enjoy you know going out and having and, and doing uh, interviews so this is. To admit that, <laughs> put it on paper, uh, so to write it and share it with others, I think that's one one way of, um, yeah, dealing with this and also, you know, also of self care. Um, that I realized. Yeah. I must say I I agree with you, Chris, that uh, Omer's and Ivana's chapters are really nice, and what I loved with Omer's that he actually says what I'm struggling with on an everyday basis and I've been in a game now for I don't know how many years and I'm still surprised each time when I try to write and nothing comes out and where Omer actually manages to to spell out that this phase where nothing where you produce nothing but your brain is seething and you're tired and you feel totally exhausted by doing nothing and then the phase passes and suddenly you can write. And I've always considered this as a failure, that I'm just not good enough. 
I have just not learned how to write. Because every time, no matter if it's an applied report I have to write in Norwegian or if it's an academic paper, every time I have this, sometimes a week, sometimes two, sometimes three weeks, where just nothing happens. And in this everyday um, work, we just don't have time to wait three weeks for nothing to happen. So, so this is extremely painful and, and probably now I've just re- learned to recognize it a bit more, but I've never seen it spelled out as Omer has done. Just this acknowledging that this is a very important part of what it means to do reflective field work and what it means to write good papers at the end. Um, so I think this, this I, I, I hope that I can just acknowledge it better and thus maybe it might not be as painful. Um, I mean, I had this, which I also write in the introduction, this one um, crucial point where I became unable to write due to the experiences in the field. I was unprepared. I had this one interview that I was not prepared to have. And when I came home, I just, uh, each time I wanted to write, each time I wanted to do other analysis, I just saw a tortured body. Um, And what really helped that time was first the acknowledgement that it is important what you do, continue doing it, but also the acknowledgement, yes, it is important, and yes, it is painful. And I think several write in this book this this yearning for an acknowledgement of the pain and the importance, and not it's it's so easy to say why do you do this? Why don't you find something else to do? Um, and I think this has little to do with self care because it's care done by others, acknowledging acknowledging that what you do is important, and yes, it's painful, but given the right care, both the care by others and by yourself, it's actually doable. Yeah, I'm sure if we all had a, I don't know, maybe a chocolate bar for every time someone said to us, well, why don't you just do something else, right? Yeah, yeah, so I really appreciate those responses. And I think there's there's much here that um, particularly early career researchers are maybe just as much as well as, as those have been doing it for years that can gain from the reflections in, in these chapters. Um, a couple of questions I wanted to kind of um, sort of finish off our time with um, is around advice you might have for graduate students who are doing this for the first time. You mentioned this a little bit already, um, but then also what you think readers might learn who are uh, those who work outside of academia, right? So maybe they do field work for various NGOs or maybe for the UN, what they might also gain from this book as well. I would say that um, most of the things we have discussed and most of the things that are written in the book are applicable for people working outside of academia. Um, the acknowledgement that self-care is important and of utmost urgency, actually, in order to do a good job. Um, And also this acknowledgement that self-care is a reflexive way of 
doing that job, also in our way doing field work, but for the no NGO worker, engaging with people um, and being able to do this over time. And I also think that a lot of what we write about in the violent context is actually also applicable for researchers doing research in other um, fields where they engage with people. Also, a lot is just applicable for engaging with people over time. Um, and uh, concerning these takeaway lessons, I, I had to think about, I live in Norway and Norwegians are very fond of going to the mountains, both skiing and hiking in the summer. And then um, they're very fond of rules. So they have created this mountain code, which is kind of a rule of a list of nine rules that you are supposed to stick to while hiking or skiing in the mountains. And it's, it's plan your trip and inform others about the route you take and pay attention to the weather and prepare for bad weather and bring the necessary equipment and choose a safe route and use compass and maps and don't be ashamed to turn around. And I think many of those those um, rules meant for making people survive in the quite changing weather conditions in Norwegian mountains are actually also quite applicable for researchers, a kind of plan your trip, prepare yourself, not only where to go, with whom to speak, where to live, but also what might you, so what are your own boundaries? Where are your boundaries? How far are you prepared to go? Um, and especially this, it's not a shame to turn around. Yeah, it's not a shame to leave. <laughs> yeah. Because we don't learn this. Nobody tells us it's, and, and we have plenty of examples in the book where people have gotten advice from their supervisor. Fantastic data. Take care. Instead of get the hell out of here. And I think so. There's this, it's not a shame to get out. I think this is the, most important lesson that people can take with them. Yeah, and I think with this, and I, I love this, the, the, the mountain code uh, idea, um, that with this, it's also, um, you know, it, you, you're, you, you don't, you, you know, you're not, yeah, it's the, you're, not a, you're, not, you're not a failure. And don't be, um, don't be so hard on yourself. Like really, yeah, I'm telling myself this every day. Nothing, also danger-wise, nothing is worth, you know, you um, you feeling bad or you getting hurt. You know, your research is not, um, uh, it's not worth it. And often students even ask me, like, if I feel this, if I feel unsafe, but do you still think because it's really good data? No, no, no. I mean, research is important. But it's not that important. It's not worth risking your own safety, your own sanity over. So yeah, don't be ashamed to turn around and go back home. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm fundamentally important um, rule, I think, <laughs> definitely. Um, well, I really appreciate your time and I wanted to wrap up with a couple of slightly different questions uh, to finish off our time together. Uh, one, I'd love to hear about what each of you are planning for the future, or sort of the, the near future in terms of research you're doing or any other related activities that you have to this sort of notion of, of self-care and of thinking reflexively about fieldwork. I'll let you go first. <laughs> um, 
Well, as I said, so I'm in the field now, so I'm trying to live by, you know, these kind of rules. Uh, I'm not in the mountains, but uh, uh, I'm, I'm working actually in the desert, uh, largely. Um, but um, yeah, so this is, I'm working now on this, uh, on, a, on a new topic, which actually I realized how much more, how easy it is for me because I work a lot with, uh, with activists who think like me politically. Um, so that makes life really, you know, suddenly my research is a bit lighter than it has been before. Um, but it's interesting to see the difference, uh, the difference here, like while I'm doing research with, uh, with, with the research on, on security actors that I did, which was very hard, uh, um, hard on me. Uh, so this is a bigger project that I'm, um, I'm uh, undertaking now, and I think I'm I'm continuing, uh, and I think this is something that Nerina and me already started before even thinking about this project and this book, um, thinking about uh, about methodology, about uh, ethics of doing research, but what it means, code of ethics, etc. So I'm I'm continuing to think about these issues, uh, also teaching about them to uh, mostly bachelor students. Um, I think these are these issues are really important uh, um, to keep on, uh, on, on, uh, on engaging with. So that's for me uh, what I'm doing now. Mm. Well, I have currently two projects going on. One is a larger international research project on resettlement of refugees to Norway, where we followed in the region um, street-level bureaucrats in uh, how they interview and select refugees for resettlement. Um, and it, it seems to be a quite different field, but um, kind of this reflection on what what does it do to people to listen to violent stories all the time. So I, I take this with me when in my interaction with the street-level bureaucrats. So how do they cope? Um, what mechanisms do they have um, to, to cope with the stories they hear and which also enables them hopefully to still see um, people behind the case files and not only numbers. Um, and the other project I have is it um, goes back to what uh, Ivan and Omer have written, kind of this uh, supposed to write a biography of one of um, of a Kurdish former Kurdish guerrilla fighter, and this has been going on for very very far too long. Uh, time and I've still not finished um, but where I've kind of had to have a lot of thinking a lot of unproductive seemingly unproductive time thinking about how to write about violence and suffering um, in an engaging way and also in a way that doesn't um, cover the strength and the optimism of the person I'm writing about Although she has experienced horrendous things, but she still remains strong and optimistic about the future and how to combine uh, the violence and the optimism. And I think I still haven't solved it, but probably I have come a bit closer to that. And the third third project, which we all, both uh, Erela Linda and I are engaged with, is the Routledge Handbook on Mass Violence, where we um, try to bring together different uh, people from different disciplines and approaches in order to explore and test and expand our understanding of mass violence. Thank you. I'm 
look forward to sampling all of that when it comes out uh, eventually. Uh, so the last question that I have for you, uh, each of you, is any recommendations, given the conversation we've had today, any recommendations you have for our listeners, people who are interested in all these topics, uh, recommendations in terms of any books, film, fiction, or other media that you think would be really interesting that has been really influential for you? Well, well, Davina and me were chatting about this before, and we were like, okay, that's a difficult question. And then I said, yeah, but I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm reading these really light books, and I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm looking at these Netflix series. And then we realized, we were like, we can't tell, say that. Well, here we go. Here I said it. Um, but... Uh, oh, could you? Yeah, no, sorry. But uh, I think, because I'm saying this because um, um, I think that... Um, that it's exactly why we we also have a need for like kind of light entertainment be, while doing this kind of work. And I think it's it's a sort of self care. It's a way of doing self care. It's not that we are that's the only thing that we read and watch, but that's just as an aside. Uh, but it's self care to after you know dealing with all these very difficult um, content all day um, to be able to uh, you know watch something. Uh, Completely different. Um, but the one tip I had, I just read, it's an older book, um, fiction, uh, but I think uh, as most of his books, uh, it was uh, very impressive. And that's uh, what, uh, What's the What by uh, Dave Eggers, uh, which is about um, refugees uh, from Sudan and their lives in uh, in the United States from the perspective of of uh, of um, of um, of the people themselves, and this is something that also I think that he's famous for for really taking the stories uh, um, of the people he works with and uh, and digging deep and letting them tell their stories. So a bit of a ethnographer himself. So that would be my tip. Yes, I also think that's maybe the really strong side effect of doing the type of research that reading really good books. Um, is not a habit I have, unfortunately, because most of really good books are sad and difficult to work through. And I try not to engage with these types of emotions in my free time. But having said this, I think um, a book that is now, as an, an, an anthropological book that is now um, yeah, 13 years old is Davis and Spencer's... Uh, Spencer's book on emotions in the field, the psychology and anthropology of fieldwork experiences. So we've built um, a lot on, on them. And uh, another book I just started to read in the hope to get inspiration of how to, to deal with, uh, as, as I said earlier, kind of the suffering and the optimism is, is a novel by Joman Hardy uh, called Whispering Walls. Uh, she's a um, she's Kurdish and she writes about um, a family shortly before the US invasion uh, of Iraq and how the members of the family um, come to terms with a troubled past and and what she really does is, is drawing the reader into the story conjuring smells, feelings and emotions and kind of addressing the painful and difficult issues in a very sensitive but also beautiful way mm. Thank you. Excellent. Well, I'm intrigued to go and sample some of that. And yes, I'm glad that we had the confession about the light entertainment because that is very important as well. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so it's been my pleasure to talk with uh, Nimir Weiss and Ella Graziani uh, about their new edited book, Entanglements of Ethnographic Fieldwork in a Violent World. And you can check it out um, through Routledge. It was published this year as part of their series in fieldwork and ethnographic research. Thank you, both of you, for joining me. Thank you for Thank having you. us.